0: Welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I am not alone this week. I have the very talented fellow podcaster from the Deep Dive Network, Nathan Bodery here with me. Nathan, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Scott. Absolutely, my friend. I'm really excited to have you do this show with me because when I did the Let It Be show, you wrote to me and you said, oh man, I wish you would have let me know you were doing this. <laughs> so, of course, got to have you on for Abbey Road.
1: Yes, well, uh, no, yeah. Normally, I'm not talking about the Beatles, so the the idea of actually being able to talk about the Beatles is very—it's too enticing to pass up. <laughs> well, your co-host no. is not a big Beatles fan. No, in fact, as you know, we grew up together and as as kids, we always—he always—I think he just had kind of a a, a knee jerk reaction against the Beatles because they were so popular and still remain so popular. So he's. Uh, come come along uh, on them in a in number of ways, but they're still not his, his favorite band. But he's not quite as stubborn and uh, anti-Beatles as he was <laughs> when we were growing up. You know, I, I think for me, at least, even
0: bands that I might not like, I can greatly appreciate their contribution to the world of music. Like, I'm not a big Buddy Holly fan. I don't own a Buddy Holly record. I've never craved, like, God, I got to hear some Buddy Holly today. Sure. But I certainly have an appreciation for
1: the road that he paved for us to have the music that we do today. Absolutely. Yeah. And the Beatles at my uh, my co-host, John, uh, would famously say in, in high school that ah, they weren't in, they didn't they weren't really influential. They didn't have a or what is he? They weren't like a big part of our culture or something. <laughs> and then I was like, are you crazy? And even he admits that that was misguided.
0: Oh, good. Well, even from a, a developmental technology standpoint, what those guys were doing on a four track people can't do today with 60 tracks. I I
1: was just talking about this. this, Who was I talking about this to just the other day? I bet it wasn't John. No, it wasn't. (laughs) wasn't John. I think it was. I think it might have been somebody at work or something that had mentioned something about recording. And so we started just kind of talking uh, just about about that fact. And it's just it's baffling to me that they were able to achieve what they could with just four tracks and and bouncing them. And a bounce is such a dangerous, risky, permanent thing. And Mm -hmm. they did it again and again and again and were able to achieve some of the most incredible music of all time. There's a part of me that really
0: wonders if they actually did a backup to another tape before they started doing the bouncing just to have that in case things didn't go right. But then when you've got, you know, their their producer and engineer, the guy kind of was one of the greatest people ever in the business, so sure. Maybe he felt that confident, but you you make one wrong decision and you've ruined it.
1: Yeah, you make a good, interesting point about the backups. Uh, the the I recently was watching the uh, Paul McCartney three two one with mm. the Rick Rubin. Yeah, and really, really interesting. And you know, you're watching them, and they've they're just like weirdly standing in the middle of this room, and they've got a mixing board there, and they're like, oh, let's raise up the bass and listen to the, this. And I, like, these those can't be the original tapes that they're they didn't just like bring out the original tapes and let's just play around with the, these fifty year old tapes. So I, I wondered like wh- how they're how they're doing that. They must have like series of backups or maybe they even have, some, they, they must've digitized these in some way. Uh, the original tracks, of course they guard those probably very carefully, but um, I, 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 there's gotta be some way that people are able to again and again and again and again, remaster and retool all of this stuff.
0: Well, I would say if those individual masters or those backups exist, I would imagine that they're in like one of those seed vaults, you know, that's on some yes. island that no <laughs> one can get to. You'll
1: yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll be able to grow arugula again, and we will have hard day's night. That's right. All, all we need is a civilization.
0: Right. Uh, but, you know, with the software that we have today, like Audionamics, who makes my dialogue cleaner, they also make a product called Extract Stems, which allows you to actually separate out those frequencies so they have uh it separates into vocals bass drums and other so other Mm -hmm. would be like your guitars and keyboards uh mixed together on one track just because those frequencies cross over so much they can't really separate them at this point but they're pretty clean the way they do it and then they have a professional service that they do where they've cleaned up things for movies and and huge music projects so it could be that they're using some of those kind of tools now to do it, but how they've been doing it for the last 10, 15 years, I, it, it seems like it would have to be more than a good EQ. Yeah,
1: I mean, they're surely guarded by some of the best uh, engineers probably in the world mm-hmm. uh, who are, A, taking care of the original originals, and then I'm sure there's there's copies out there that are that are... Just as, almost at the same exact level of quality that they're able to use to manipulate. Because I just can't, I can't believe that they're just the number of times, just the number of times they've been played to remix and re-release things alone would put significant wear on them. Never mind just those every documentary they're fiddling around with knobs and everything. Sure. It's, it's, there's got to be something else that they're doing. Yeah, I would have to agree with
0: that. And I don't know, I don't even know who would own that. Mm. You know, because Michael Jackson bought the rights to the music, but I don't think that came with any of the physical stuff that would go with it, like the reels or anything like that. I think yeah, he just, just had the, the copyright stuff. You know, right. the publishing yeah, I don't rights. know
1: if, if it's part if it's owned by Abbey Road or EMI or a combination or I know Paul McCartney was able to get, I think, a lot of those rights back, if not all of them. But yeah, mm-hmm. who knows? It, that, that stuff is so that legal stuff is so complicated. I wouldn't even begin to guess how how that all goes down it is a nightmare
0: and i can't even Mm. imagine at the level of the beatles just with their sheer catalog what that would be like to deal with let alone you know just just having their fame and everything on
1: top of that yeah everyone wants a little piece of that Any any slight any tiny fraction of a percentage of any of that is is gold so everyone's Mm. gonna be competing for it in some legal sense. Absolutely. Well, now we were talking uh, a little bit
0: earlier about when this album came out. I did not realize that this was their final entry into the music world as an official release album. Uh, so I've got a date of September 26th, 1969 as the release. That sounds about right to me now to put that in deep purple terms, since you're from the deep purple mm. podcast, book italic and i've got is october of 68 and the self-titled third deep purple album june 21st of 69 so they would have been ending their time with rod evans about the
1: time this came out yep they would by the time this came out mark ii would have been around for three months or so so they would have played they would have played a few gigs by then already yep Okay. Yeah, I think they played their first gigs in July, I think. So, so yeah, the, the the Deep Purple had three albums out by the time Abbey Road comes out as their final, well, depending on how you catalog it, their final album. I I would say fi-
0: final official new studio release. Like as far as an album that they said we've got this collection of songs we're going to release it under this album title, right? And y- Let It Be
1: was floating around. I think Let It Be came out as an album after this, mm-hmm. but um but was recorded prior. Yeah, that's what I've heard too.
0: It gets so confusing with that history. But what was really weird to me about the Beatles was at some point they kind of stopped being a touring band and they just sat in a room and wrote albums.
1: Yeah, I think their final show was like in '66. Was it? Shea? It might have been Shea Stadium, um, mm-hmm. uh, but it was one of the whatever it was. I think it was '66 was their last show because. And it's funny because they they stopped playing because they just there was no venue that could accommodate the number of people and still uh, actually get the music to be able to be heard. They were using the actual PA speakers where they'd be like, this guy is stepping up to the plate <laughs> <laughs> to, you know, which is probably a ho- horrible, terrible uh, fidelity on the speaker oh, to, yeah. to pump into the stands. And then, of course, the people in the crowd were so loud and screaming that you couldn't hear them anyway even in a smaller venue so it's it's amazing that there were so many things about the beatles that there's that the fact that they 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 outgrew the ability to be able to play um clubs or or even or even these giant venues because the the technology wasn't there yet for them uh, they even had to write the british tax code around the amount of money that they were making because you know the song tax man is about i think the beatles were at that point, they were paying like 92% or something like, oh. of their income was going into taxes. My God. And um, uh, they were just kind of... I, I, because because no one had encountered on anybody making this much money mm-hmm. that they didn't know how to deal with it. And I think they had to just rewrite the laws to say, okay, yes, we'll tax you higher, but maybe that's a little high. Yeah. I, and to to think about... They they
0: still don't get that full eight percent because that's just taxes. That doesn't count all the people that they have to pay. Their publicists, their <laughs> right. manager, like and all of those. And they were still
1: they were still unbelievably wealthy. <laughs> right. so, yeah, yeah. Now they were
0: they weren't struggling at any point. Well, I remember an interview with Ian Gillen where he talked about the amount of taxes he had to pay was like sixty eight percent at one point, point. and I thought, God, that's just insane. I can't imagine giving away that much of my my work.
1: Yeah. And, and that's why a lot of uh, it, 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 I, in reading all these books on Deep Purple and Beatles and stuff, you hear about these tax exiles where you had to um you. I don't know exactly how it worked because I'm, I'm not familiar with UK tax code, but a lot of them lived elsewhere. So they wouldn't have to pay the UK tax, but they could still maintain some level of whatever citizenship if they lived a certain amount. So there's a lot of stories of like, oh roger had to go back to england for a month to just say he was there Mm -hmm. uh so we did this or you know ian gillan had to it wasn't you know lived in france and had to had to go back to england for a couple months to to whatever for whatever legal reason if you're listening to this from uk you probably know and think i'm an idiot but um (laughs) there were these reasons for why they had to they had to go back to the uk and then then they could go back to wherever they were and and it was mostly to avoid taxes and right. they, they were all over Europe and and a lot of them came to California and fell in love with that and moved there. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think uh, I think they they probably revised a lot of the tax law after that because they realized they were overall losing by by charging so much they were losing even more. And And this was when, you know,
0: these kind of bands coming through, hitting these big numbers. This was a pretty new thing. You know, Jimi Hendrix may have been popular, but he wasn't a rich man playing music while he was alive. You know, it unfortunately, wasn't, he wasn't around. It wasn't, wasn't really releasing things long enough to right. to get there. Yeah, Exactly. Now, on the bright side of this, had there not been these tax issues, there wouldn't have been need for the loopholes that caused Deep Purple to record Machine Head in Switzerland. This is true. That's exactly yeah, why they had recorded there. Yep. So we may not have had the Machine Head that we know. I mean, we certainly wouldn't have had smoke in the water because the story would not have have occurred. This
1: is true. At least not with them involved. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's very true. And who knows if Frank would have still been there, but maybe he would have written a song about it. Although um, I, and we're going to have to
0: do we're going to have to find a way to do the 200 motels review because oh. that was the tour that he was on that Deep Purple mm-hmm. saw the night that the flare gun went off. I can't imagine doing 200 motels live. I can't
1: imagine doing anything by Zappa Live.
0: <laughs> well, well <some laughs> you have to stuff be a, like Joe's Garage. It, you could do or a lot of Joe's Garage. You could do, but those are most straightforward songs.
1: Yeah, I'm straightforward forward by Zappa standards. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I, anything by Zappa. I'm just like, I, you know, I, I you have to just be a musician on a different level than I'm on to, to know how to perform any of that. Yeah. I, I mean,
0: I, I've tried to figure out how he wrote some of his stuff. And I just end up going, yeah, I'll probably never figure that out. I I don't have his brain. I'll never understand how he put things together. Even as a musician, I can look at it and go, I don't get it.
1: I can play Uncle Remus. I can do a pretty good job of that on the piano. It's probably maybe his most straightforward song ever. One of my favorites by him, maybe for that reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I really love that song. And uh, yeah, that's about the only song by him that I can act. And I'm probably not playing it um super correctly but i can play it passably so that you could recognize it
0: right yeah definitely uh someone who really stands out as an individual genius in the music world or somebody who most people just won't get
1: or both yes. or both yeah
0: <laughs> so before we get into the album cover i gotta ask you nate what
1: are you drinking i am drinking a uh, gumball head by three floyds which is a local brewery uh oh. um, about maybe 45 minutes from here very nice um, yeah. And uh, John had actually he, he sent it to me. Well, actually, like, oh, was this, it was this, this I, the
0: famous beer that he tried to get to you? Yes. For...
1: <laughs> it took about uh, two weeks to get to, to send me a thank you gift because of uh, some delivery issues. But finally well, got it. I making my way through the 12 pack. I love that.
0: I normally uh, don't drink when I record or when I work or anything. So I have a very low alcohol tolerance. But I knew you were coming on the show. And being that we're doing a Beatles show, I mean, they didn't really do anything without some kind of substance in the room. There you so go. I, so, um, you, so you dropped some acid before I, we... <laughs> yeah. And Nate, I'd never <laughs> seen you look more purple. Uh, the uh, I was down in Arizona recently, and I picked up one of my favorite beers. It is a Sonoran White Chocolate Ale. Ooh, it has just just phenomenal. enough white chocolate to take out the bitterness of the beer, but not actually be sweet. And it is... Uh, brewed, I believe, at the Santan Brewery. Wow, that sounds fantastic! It is, it is mighty delicious. I would send you some, but I don't know if it would get there this
1: year or, <laughs> you know, yeah. And and it, even being where you are now, it's still probably too too late. Usually, if you, I've sent beer in the, I've done beer exchanges with people. Uh, in the past and um yeah it's it's a there's a slim window when you can send it and it's not going to either freeze or mm. or be too hot so right yeah now is the perfect time but even where you are it might still be a little too it is it is knows. still a
0: little warm out uh but i didn't realize you could ship beer i thought that was one of the things that you couldn't
1: do uh ship alcohol well i don't think you're supposed to uh, I, didn't say, I didn't say you can <laughs> you, you, you can do I i think you just have to kind of like uh, be careful about how you answer the questions. Is there anything in here? Whatever. Oh no, I don't think so. Yeah, you know, I don't. Whatever. I don't remember packing that. What's in there? Some bottles. What's in the bottles? Nothing.
0: A, a liquidy bottles. substance.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've had. I haven't had any disasters. It's all I mean, I haven't done it a ton either, but it's always worked out.
0: I mean, you know, there's companies that do that, like the Wine of the Month Club and and that sure. stuff. I mean, they ship all the time. Yeah. I didn't realize as a consumer you could do that.
1: No, probably you probably shouldn't, but. <laughs>
0: It. <laughs> it doesn't stop people uh okay so let's talk about this album cover because this album cover is not without its controversy mm-hmm. uh even if you don't know about the billy Shear side of things which we'll get to in a minute looking at the album cover of course the whole paul is dead thing was going on for quite a long time uh i don't remember was uh, sergeant pepper i think was the first one that they started talking about that or was it before
1: that I think it was Sergeant Pepper, if I'm not mistaken, where they uh, where it start. Oh, what? Uh, yeah, I think that was where it started. Yeah, there's like 53 things that leave <laughs> that are clues that that Paul is I, dead. And uh, I think when they're talking about he blew his uh, his mind out. I think they were they thought Paul McCartney died in a car crash or something like that. Right. Yeah. The, the day yeah. in the life. Yeah. Uh,
0: But then they had, you know, all these little things that certain people in certain positions with their hands in certain, you know, angles and things and uh, all these things that people now have looked at it and gone, well, I found another clue to Paul being dead. And and it all there's like a ton of them on the Sgt. Pepper album cover. There's there's a part of me that's like, maybe the Beatles did this, but they didn't need to. It's not like they were going to gain more fans by having controversy. I mean, every every young person pretty much was a Beatles fan at that point uh i i don't i don't really know what the motivation was behind all that
1: i i think it was one of those things where it um they they when they realized it was a thing they started to kind of play play it up a little bit mm-hmm. and you know like things like the walrus was paul and uh because I, I think that was like one of those I don't remember all of them. I think the walrus is like a symbol of death in some mm. religion or something. So the ah the walrus was Paul, you know, even though they have a song called "I'm the Walrus" and it's John singing it for some reason. <laughs> right, you know, yeah. I think it's like anyone would would pick up on anything and think it was it was a, another clue. Yeah. So th- they started putting in actual intentional things too. And you're
0: talking, of course, about the great song "Glass Onion." where yes, john yes. john revealed that i think i think it was maybe something that once they got out uh they were just like let's just have fun with this you know yeah. let's let's play it up for people and it gave them something more to do than just make music too you know
1: it, right it and, and, and john thing. lennon was uh, was notoriously just loved like tease people and stuff so like he wrote that i I, th- I think the story is like about i am the walrus is that he heard like he heard that like in some college classes they were analyzing beatles lyrics so that's why the lyrics for i am the walrus are, are just complete nonsense he mm. he said well it was kind of like well anal- analyze this then i'm gonna make a song that is completely you know, sitting on a cornflake and all this absolute nonsense um and I think it was it, it was in response to that. At least I mm. heard, it. you know, I forget all these things like what did I read in books? What did I hear? What's a rumor? Sure. Who knows How much of it's true? But right. that's, that's what I remember reading anyway.
0: I could I could see him doing that. I mean, a lot of his lyrics were somewhat abstract anyway. So it probably would have been a very natural progression for him to go, well, I'll just write it about this and throw yep. some s- throw some of my typical Lennon stuff in there, you know. But the big the big clue on this album is supposedly the fact that Paul McCartney is the only one not wearing shoes. And of course, they don't bury you with shoes because, I mean, you know, the the lower half of you is not viewed. Uh, They really don't even need to put pants on you except to keep your shirt properly (laughs) aligned, you know. Um, So so that was the big clue on this album. I actually heard an interview with Paul McCartney where they asked him about that. And here's what I don't understand about his answer. He said he was wearing sandals, and mm-hmm. it was it was very hot day, and so he took his sandals off because his feet Just were too hot to walk across the street. And I thought, that's what he would put them sense. on.
1: Yes. <laughs> well, things are different in England. I don't I don't know how hot it gets in England, but yeah, and you're not doing in that in Las Vegas. No, you're not even doing that in Chicago where I am <laughs> in the summertime. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I I
0: found that kind of interesting. It's like the astronaut when they one of the astronauts they said, "Well, how did you get past the Van Allen belt?" And he goes, "Oh, we didn't go that far." <laughs> well, then you didn't go to the moon because it's kind of in your way. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things. that's a that, shortcut. Yeah, it kind of keeps the conspiracy theory going.
1: Well, right, and you I know, think that's the the thing is like if you analyze enough, like the Beatles have probably more interviews and and audio interviews and everything out there than anything. You could catch anybody in a, I mean, from doing, I'm sure, you know, from doing your podcast and from doing my pot, my, my dumb little podcast once a week, I slip up all the time. Just you're talking for a couple hours. Mm -hmm. You say, you misspeak, you say things. Sometimes I'll listen back. It's like, what was I know. I, I know that what I said was wrong, but I, you know, your brain's somewhere else. So it's very easy to um, do that. And that's, you know, people jump on politicians for, oh my God, they said this. It's like, well, they're talking all day. You're going to catch them in mistakes. You're going to catch these guys in mistakes. You're going to catch the most famous uh, astronauts in the world are going to slip up. So Mm -hmm. people just, I think people just love to think that there's like some crazy conspiracy out that just keeps people interested. There's one other clue on this uh, album cover about,
0: Besides the shoes, do you, know, well, do you know what that is? Before we get to that, let me just add it's like Ian Pace said, you know, a lot of these things that people ask us about, they're just 10, 10 seconds or a quick moment of our lives. It's yeah. not like we sit here and listen to this stuff over and over and analyze it like you guys do, mm-hmm. you know, and and he's absolutely right. And you think also that, all right, so you're talking this album came out in 69, late 69. So they probably took the picture, you know, somewhere around, you know, Ju- July to September in there. And so, yeah. I mean, that's more than 50 years ago. It's not like he's going to remember every little <laughs> thing that happened when they did the album cover. You know, he lived it. That's just something they did in the moment. But we, but as fans, of course, or as conspiracy theorists, we'll jump on every
1: little thing, right? Hey, Paul McCartney, know. do you remember that that Beatles uh, photo shoot? You know that one photo shoot that you guys ever did? <laughs> right. They probably did like three to four photo shoots a day, six days a week for ten years. Yeah. I mean, how many photo shoots are there of the Beatles? You can start to recognize them. Oh, this is from that shoot. This is from mm-hmm. that shoot. I've seen these before. Or, oh, I've never seen this one with this angle before, where Paul's looking to the left instead of straight ahead, or whatever. Oh, that's because so, I mean, dead so many people photos, only so look much left on these guys.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and I mean, well, and all of them together probably didn't cost as much as the first Deep Purple album cover photo shoot did. So
1: that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, Abbey Road certainly didn't. No. So what's what's the other? Uh, oh, it was something about the car, right? The license plate. Yes. So, yeah, my, I remember my dad telling me that when I was a kid. So the license plate on the Beetle back there, uh, the, the white uh, Volkswagen Beetle says it's t- two eight IF. So twenty eight IF. if
0: if he would have lived.
1: Yeah. If yeah. he was still alive, he would have been twenty eight. Right. That had to have been staged. I mean, who knows? It, it, I mean, it's it's it seems like a weird coincidence, but those sorts of things do happen where they wouldn't they have do. ever thought about it. And I, mean, I, I bet. I bet you anything it wasn't. And then when somebody brought that up, they're like, oh, my God, where are these people coming up with this stuff? I never, you know, I never would have even thought of it. But, but by that
0: point, I mean, with with it already being such a big controversy, I, I wouldn't have blamed them for setting that up if they did. You know, I mean, they're like, hey, let's, no, just, not at all. let's just throw a couple on this last album. Because <laughs> there was nothing on Let It Be, as far as
1: I know. I and mean, who knows why? I mean, I, I doubt even the I don't know that they were that a cared that much about it or thought that much about it, or mm. were that even clever to be like, I'll take my shoes off. Cause that's what they do when they bury people because, mm. and it's also the, uh, you know, we're going to make this elaborate, you know, we're going to try to cover up that Paul is dead, but we're going to put clues everywhere. Why would you do that? <laughs> right. Like, I'm going to rob this bank, but I'm going to make sure that I, you know, I, I do all of this stuff so that the police ever can have a bunch of evidence against me. You're just, if you're going to do this crime, you're going to do the crime. You don't need to, uh, put all of these clues in there and get found out about your Paul McCartney lookalike, who also seems to be another musical melodic genius. Which w- what 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 great odds are that that yeah. the Paul McCartney who wrote um, whatever uh, <laughs> I want to hold your hand is also uh, able to write I don't know <laughs> whatever's on this album. <laughs> what <laughs> album are we yeah. talking about? Like I want you or something.
0: Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and it, it is interesting, too, though, now that I think about it. The other three were wearing dress shoes on this album cover. Why would Paul McCartney have been wearing sandals?
1: I mean, it, it, it seems it seems hard to believe. It does. I don't
0: know. Now, I have read half of the book that Billy Shears wrote, and Billy Shears is supposedly the guy that is the current Paul McCartney, according to this book. Oh, right, right, of course. Yeah. And I, I do have to say, he... He phrases things and sets it up in a way that really kind of makes you raise your eyebrow. I'm not saying that I buy into it, but I'm saying that it's, it's like when you watch a magician, like it's so convincing that the stuff that they do is an illusion. It's just that well written. You know the reason that, that supposedly all this happened was because the fans would have gone nuts. They were afraid that towns would just get destroyed. You know, the the people would literally go <laughs> yes. nuts in the streets and not be able to handle the fact that that he died. And I'm like, I think they would have been able to
1: handle it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it would have it would have been terrible, but it's not unprecedented that a a, a great beloved musician dies early. It's it's happened many many yeah. many times, and it's terrible, and people it's tragic and people talk about it for 50 years later but right um, yeah people would have moved on and then the reason that they did the things like the sergeant
0: pepper album cover and this album cover is because of the guilt that they felt for covering it up they had to put clues out there to say all right we've given people a way to figure out the truth we can't come out and say it because we're legally obligated to keep our mouths shut and i'm like okay i don't I don't necessarily <laughs> buy any of that, but no, the one thing I did get was something, it was something about the families, like the, the people that he's had kids with would be destroyed if they found out it wasn't the real Paul McCartney and, you know, their, their legal obligations there. And I thought, okay, I could kind of understand that as a reason, but not to have created this whole craziness in the first place. Like it just, I don't know. It was a convincing book, but they're just the the concept of it from the beginning. I can't get behind it. No, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Well, speaking of absolutely ridiculous, this is a ridiculously great album.
1: Oh my god. Yeah, one it's of my favorites. Be, um, I mean, I, I I don't know. I have a pretty good idea what albums are in my top five. And this is definitely it. This is probably my favorite album of all time. Oh wow. Um, I don't. I mean, most likely it's Mm. without question in the top five. Um, It's, it's something that I always go back. It's one of those albums that's so good that I don't listen to it as much as I want to, because I'm afraid that I will listen to it too much. Not Mm. like it as much anymore. Right. But it's, it's something that was a really huge influence on me early on uh, when I was a kid, my dad, I have the vinyl back. Oh, I should have brought the vinyl out. First. Oh, yeah. Um, my, I got my dad's vinyl copy of... He had a, a bunch of the Beatles. He had like all the Beatles albums except oddly the white album he never had. Huh. But um, he I think he had all of the rest of them. And it's something I had from his record collection and he actually brought to me recently. So now I have it here on premises. And um, yeah, it's just a absolutely phenomenal album. Was this the first Beatles album that you got into? No. Um, the first The first Beatles album I ever got wasn't really a a proper album, but it was a it was a cassette called the Beatles 20 Greatest Hits. Mm. And I got it for Christmas in 1982. And I remember thinking like, oh, this those old guys that make music like this is kind of disappointing. Um, And I didn't really play it for a while. And then one day I was bored or whatever. So I put it in my cassette player. And yeah, that was pretty much it. And then I would just not stop playing it ever for any reason. Mm hmm. Yeah, mine was actually Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, yes. That
0: was the first one I got into. And then I think it was the White Album. And then at the, all kind of at the same time, it was Abbey Road, Revolver, and Let It Be. It's mm. like yeah. right around that same time, I just like grabbed all of them and started listening to them.
1: Uh, I, I think Sgt. Pepper was probably my first like proper album. Oh, okay. So my dad had the vinyl of that. And mm-hmm. it was one of my the first CDs that I ever got. And then I started to kind of explore from there on. Yeah. Now I will make a quick side note to any Beatles
0: fans. If you guys are coming to Vegas or planning a Vegas trip at some point, get a ticket to the Beatles love over at the Mirage. It's a Mm. Cirque du Soleil show. Uh, Sir George Martin actually mixed the music for that theater. So they must have had, oh, wow. you know, some element of multi track or something because there there's a lot of uh it's not they don't just play the songs. Like there's interweavings of uh talk from the studio that's never been released, uh except in that show. There's um also uh just like real weird uh mixes of the songs blending into each other. It's very, very well done. But if you're if you're a fan of the Beatles, it's a show that is well worth seeing. Awesome. Yeah, I've heard people have seen it that says great. And I had a friend that used to do the laundry over at that show, and it's like six thousand loaves of laundry every week. Mm. Yeah, it's insane. It sounds like my uh, my house, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you just have the two kids, <laughs> three, <Or> three <laughs> kids. Yeah. Well, there you go. It would be a lot easier <laughs> by by a third. <laughs> so let's uh, let's get into the album now. The first track is is called "Come Together." It's a song that has been covered many times by many people, and I think. The most recognizable cover version I remember was from a movie called Shock 'em Dead with Tracy Lords. It was like a cheap B horror movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> where this guy was like a, a nerd that was getting beat up all the time and he he, you know, the devil comes to him and he says, I want to be a rock god. So he makes him this ridiculously incredible guitarist. It's not like Crossroads at all. Because <laughs> Crossroads didn't have Tracy Lords in it this is true <laughs> so he, here is come together the players on my screen why is it not doing oh there it is what gets me on this song is the drum sound
1: it's fantastic yeah it's somebody just just made a video just the other day that came up i don't remember what platform was up but but what a genius ringo was Mm -hmm. and played played a few songs this was one of them where they say everyone's always slagging on ringo but here's what most drummers would play during song it's like for come together for example he just played like a normal drum beat and Mm -hmm. he's like but this is what ringo did and then he does the ringo beat It's really interesting he does like five or six songs like that uh but yeah it's 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 very inventive
0: yeah and i mean if you think of a song like this or tomorrow never knows where he's doing something that's just really out of this world but i think the the greatest thing about ringo was that he had that swing feel to him kind of like ian pace does you know and if you watch the watch him play love me do live and you'll see it's not just like ticking right on the beat. It's got a real swing feel to it. And when you watch him play it, it really comes out. Absolutely. Yeah, but, um, but I love this song. I love the drum sound because they don't just sound like he's hitting drums. It sounds like he's playing him in a different way where he's not getting the attack, but he's still getting the
1: sound out of the drum. Yeah, it's, uh, it's awesome. And McCartney's bass on this is just... I mean the the keys on it are great. Mm-hmm. I think McCartney plays the keys. Mm. Um, um, I think. Uh, or no, uh, no, Lennon plays the electric piano on this one. Okay. Um, so Harrison does the lead. Um, and then there's all this percussion and McCartney's bass. I mean, you're, I I I'll try not to gush too much about Paul McCartney, but <laughs> it's going to be he hard. Gets, I mean, he gets he gets a lot of credit for being a great bass player, but I still think he's underrated. Mm-hmm. Just just unbelievable melodic bass player some of the greatest basslines of all time
0: and he plays them so smoothly while singing and you know doing everything else uh and, and he's so well spoken about music any interview i've ever heard him do he's just he comes at it from a, a place of just comfortable knowledge mm-hmm. you know it's so natural to him you know here's how you write a hit song and he, he's just yeah. so plain about it Oh, it's that easy. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's why everyone's doing it. Step one, be Paul McCartney. Okay, <laughs> yeah, cool. exactly. Step two, have uh, that John Lennon influence on in you. I can't imagine what it would be, what it would have been like to just wake up every day and say, all right, I'm going to head down to work. Uh, I'm going to meet John at the studio. We'll write songs probably for about four hours, break for tea. You know, like it's just such a casual thing. Like John Lennon and I are going to write some music.
1: Yeah, no big deal. Yeah, two of the greatest songwriters of all time <laughs> right. just falling into each other's laps. Exactly, but no, it's it's a
0: great song, and and this is another one where I say I I, I know that he has meaning in the lyrics,
1: but to me they're very abstract. It's, well, I mean, the beginning part of the lyrics is just ripped off straight from was it Bo Diddley or something, mm-hmm. um, or oh Chuck Berry. I'm sorry, oh Chuck, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a you know, here come old flat top, and it's great that they they could do all stuff like that and all music is like that and Mm. um it's cool that they could just you know they they can pay homage to something but still um still make it something their own exactly well now you just get sued to hell for it yeah i mean there's a lot of a lot of these lawsuits that go around and some of them are pretty frivolous Mm. but just saying that oh this this is like that tom petty one yeah it was like i was like i mean tom petty you didn't invent make he rest in peace you didn't invent the gc and d chord uh th- that's been used in many many songs
0: right i mean if that was the case then Bell should have sued just about everyone because <laughs> you know like was <laughs> yes. like 40 percent of the songs that ex- have been popular in the pop world have used that same progression so yep, it, where does it end <laughs> so the next track uh that we're going to play is is actually one of my absolute favorite beatle songs i love uh, just the feel of it the mood of it i love singing along to it when no one can hear me because i can't sing <laughs> and it is called something I'm going to save you the trouble of gushing over Paul McCartney because what <laughs> he is playing here is absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I mean, he's all over the place. He's he's playing the the root of the song, but he's also just giving us all these little fill-ins that, that really just keep the whole thing moving, keep it really interesting. And I love the sound he's getting on the song.
1: Yeah, his his tones are incredible. And wh- what he's doing often is playing like lead bass mm-hmm. and just really be bopping around in these weird melodic ways that on paper it should just not work. It should be kind of like, oh, what are you doing? This is like distracting or offensive or just like we're trying to focus on the song, but it's it never is those things. It's never it always. But if you stripped out his line from the song and just played a very standard root note, progression um it would every song that paul mccartney's on would lose so much Mm -hmm. that's i think obviously what makes the beatles so great is that the the sum of the uh, you know the sum of the parts sort of situation it's it's all it's always all adding them all together Create something much greater than some of its parts.
0: Yeah. And, and not to discount George Harrison's contribution to this. I mean, those just that, <laughs> Which that is 100%. Little, oh, almost <laughs> right, yeah.
1: As far as writing goes, yes. But. Yeah.
0: Just that little lick that he's throwing in there in the guitar and then the filler he does right before the chorus. You know, those little things really can make a song. You know, they, mm-hmm. they make them unique. Those are the things that get stuck in your head. I don't know how many times I've been just out doing whatever and just hear da, 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 da.
1: And like, where is that? Why is that even in my head right now? It just comes out of nowhere. But oh, those are the incredible. things that, wasn't, yeah. wasn't it like, um, oh, was it Frank Sinatra that says the greatest love song ever made or ever written? Mm-hmm. Like, I and mean, it's pretty high praise, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and he's not wrong, no, no. I mean, it's it's, it's phenomenal. And there's that great thing of the, the new release of Let It Be where it's it seems almost like it's staged from a movie like where where they go back in time you know in a movie where they go back in time and it's always like this really cheesy thing that would never have happened about um we have this statue and it it it, it represents liberty what should we call it we should call it the statue of liberty oh great you know it's always this like grand moment that never would have actually happened right well on the let it be sessions there's this you know conversation between john and paul or i'm sorry john and um george where george is like i've been I've been going over this in my head. I don't know how, what the next word is. And John's like, do well, you just got to keep singing. You just got to keep singing words and it'll eventually come. Mm-hmm. And, and you're just kind of coaching him. And, and then he's keeps going through, you know, I think he says like, say, you know, something in the, in, in the way she moves attracts me like a pomegranate or something. <laughs> they keep throwing a cauliflower pomegranate. They keep throwing in different weird <laughs> produce <laughs> um, until they, until they can figure it out. But it's this really cool moment where, You John's showing some some wisdom as as a wizened songwriter in his late 20s to to the budding uh, talent of of uh, George Harrison. It's really cool.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it seems like from some of the interviews I've heard with Paul, they really worked almost phonetically on the lyrics. They went more for the sound Mm -hmm. and then tried to figure out what they could say that would sound something like that, which is, I think, why a lot of their songs kind of don't really make sense to me. (laughs) <laughs> because they're like, well, this word works here,
1: right? And that sometimes, sometimes it. it's nonsense, but it, yeah. It, it, but then you, if if you write a song good enough and the lyrics are nonsense, you will you could play it at a sports stadium and have everyone yelling that nonsense along with you if it's oh, a great yeah. song. Well, yeah, because people will memorize it phonetically and sing, and, be,
0: and we've heard that. I mean, how many concerts have you listened to where the crowds all over the world are singing the oh, words yeah. that yep. you know that they don't know? Uh, But that that's also leads me to a deep purple tie in there. Have you ever heard the demo version of fools? No, I don't, uh, I don't think so. It was on the, uh, what was it? The 68 to 72 shades of uh, release. Mm -hmm. There's a a short clip of fools when they're rehearsing it. And Ian is just, uh, Ian, Ian Gillen is just kind of, He's throwing in some words and he's kind of just like testing what would he's work. Still
1: figuring out the lyrics.
0: Yeah. And it's really fascinating because you you think, you know, as a singer, like whenever I've written a song, like I write the words down. I don't really think about how they're going to fit in with the song. I just kind of write them down and then work them in. But to think about him, you know, and they and now, of course, the way they do it is they write the music first and then they sit down and do the lyrics. But they were actually still, it sounds like they were still working on the song. And he was like, well, what can I do with it? And, you know, kind of jumping in and um, it's really interesting. I'll have to send it to you.
1: Yeah, I'd like to check it out. I I was I I played in a band with a guy um, who used to do that. Like he would just he would improvise the lyrics basically Mm for I mean, even after we'd been playing the song for a long time, still wouldn't have set lyrics would always kind of improvise. And then certain themes like you'd be like, Oh, he must like that line because he throws it in every time. It was right. really interesting to, to witness that kind that kind of creative process. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and I mean to, to see
0: like such geniuses do that and see how things come together is come together. It's uh it's really kind of fascinating actually. Um, the third song, I, I feel like all of these songs were hits. You know, it seems like every one of these has been in oh. a movie or a television show or something.
1: We're having a breakup.
0: Oh, you're freezing. There. A... Oh,
1: there you are. Oh, oh. Yeah, are you, you good? Just, you just sped up. Really? You just went. Oh,
0: damn, I, hate, I hate when I time travel when I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> this well, what I was saying was, I, I feel like uh, almost every one of these songs has been licensed for something like it's been in a movie or it's been in a documentary or you know sure,
1: a great deal of them for sure
0: yeah I, you could probably say that about 70 percent of the entire beatles catalog yes this is true i would imagine <laughs> so this one is called maxwell silver hammer joan was quizzical studied back to physical on the phone can i take you out to the pictures Joan? it seems like a lot of their songs i mean they're it's a weird because their albums aren't like cohesive because they're not like a rock album where all the songs have the same kind of feel to them you know a, a hard drive and percussion heavy organ sort of thing But they're they're so all over the place from one song to another. But so many of their songs, I feel like, could have been in plays.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's definitely, especially Paul's, has a very theatrical uh, kind of show tunes quality to some Mm -hmm. of his songs, which get you know gets him a lot of scorn. (laughs) Right. I like this song though. It's it's just kind of like
0: a good, happy, enjoyable song to listen to. It just puts me in a good mood.
1: I. Love this song. And John Lennon famously hated the song. Did he? Until the day he died. Um hates it. Um but to me, yeah, it's it, it, it the, the thing that I always loved about it and listening to it as a kid is it's like this super violent song about killing people. But it's very well, like you said it's very joyful, mm-hmm. happy go lucky. It's got a great melody as Everything written by Paul McCartney does and showcases him, just f- creating somehow the perfect baseline to go along with all of this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even as thin as it sounds, there's still a lot going on in this song that really kind of keeps it on its toes. And the the lyric is delivered just it almost like I want to laugh, but I'm not going to. I'm going to get through this and do it serious. <laughs> but but I kind of feel like there's yeah. this laugh.
1: Well, and about there's that one, one that. Yeah there's one line where I forget which line it is, where he does laugh. It's like, I forget what, what, what line it is. He, 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 has a little giggle in there. Yeah. And I can also, I can, I can just almost every time I hear that, I, I picture John just like shaking his head and just wanting to die <laughs> as he's, as he's giggling his way through the lyrics.
0: Well, uh, we could, we could have the, uh, you know, we could just play place in line for him.
1: <laughs> oh, he'll, he'll like that.
0: The, I still want to do a place in line podcast with him, but I don't think it's going to happen. Hmm. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> so, our next song again another very famous song this one sung by Paul McCartney. This is Oh Darlin'. almost a strawberry fields forever drum roll just had that kind of feel to it yeah Yeah, for sure i i love how strong paul's voice is in this
1: song it's phenomenal singing is phenomenal it's a great it's a beautiful it's one of my favorite songs on this album and of all time such a simple like bluesy sort of soulful song that just works it works so well that you just you you just can't help but listen to it and say there's no way they wrote this this had to have been like a around from the 50s or something but it, I mean it's obviously is inspired mm-hmm. um by songs of that era and I'm sure it has a lot of similarities but it's just such a cool such a, a great chord progression this mm-hmm. is one I love playing and singing it's so much fun to play on the on the piano yeah. um it's it just it's
0: just a great song and i think lyrically it's something that pretty much everybody can identify with that look i i want to prove myself to you Mm -hmm. motif you know uh but yeah it's great and by the way i meant to to mention you had said earlier talking about um something being the greatest love song ever written did you see that metallica was on a live cast with elton john and he said that nothing else matters was one of the greatest songs ever written could you imagine James, James Hatfield started like crying? Yeah, <laughs> C- could you imagine? Mean, what else would you do, right? I can't. I can't even think about if that was a private chat, let alone like being broadcast out. But just yeah. to have Elton John tell you that you've written something that was that good in a in a metal band of all that like you wouldn't think that elton john
1: would be like hey i gotta check out what metallica's up to these days <laughs> yeah it's always funny when you hear like i mean obviously everyone's got everyone has their own eclectic tastes but yeah it's funny when you hear about some something like that because you like you just wouldn't imagine that elton john's rocking out so much to um
0: to metallica right like if you would have found out that say roy orbison was a really big Megadeth fan fan or, or something like that you know <laughs> been great. But I, I when I saw that, I mean, I, I I was about in tears myself because just kind of putting myself in, in James Hetfield's shoes at that moment. I can't even imagine. I mean, I've had this dream that Hans Zimmer would hear something that I wrote and, and just get all pissed off and wish that he'd have written it first. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But, you know, you never know. <laughs> that's why it's a dream. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We all have dreams. Our next song. Uh, now, if I'm not mistaken, this was written by Ringo. It is called Octopus's Garden and they do this in the, well, they do a part of it in The Beatles Love. I have to say when the show first came out, because I went, I was lucky enough to get to uh, one of the preview performances before it went public and it was very literal. So when they did Octopus's Garden, this huge inflatable octopus came down and, you know, everything that they said in the song was being done very literally. And I'm like, oh my God, please change that. That's <laughs> just, it just doesn't, you know, it's too cheesy that way. But the Mm -hmm. song itself, I actually really like the song. And here's how it goes.
1: I'd like to be Under the sea In an octopus's garden In the shade He'd let us in knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in
0: the shade now is it an octopus owned garden or a garden of octopi oh octopus's garden i think it's an i always thought it was an an octopus owned garden okay that's that's kind of where i i thought too but just when i was hearing it i thought well wait a minute though is it is that what it is you know, my mind goes to strange places when I'm recording a podcast, as you've heard probably many, many times
1: many. as of today. Listening to your show, it was a uh, 200th song. So at least 200 times I've. Oh, I've yeah.
0: Wow. Thanks for listening. That's uh, that's a lot of investment in your life there. It was great. 200. Wow. Yeah, it's great. It's and that's just been in a year in less than a year. I've been doing that show. That's crazy. But you know, when you're doing four (laughs) shows a week, it's not hard to get to those numbers. It's like, I could, I say I've written a lot of songs, but when you're writing for films, you write like 30 songs for a a 10 minute film. Right. Right. You know, uh, but I, I like this song. I mean, it's kind of light and bouncy, but do you, do you know, I don't know the behind the scenes on this. Do you have any idea how the rest of the band felt when they were doing a Ringo song? It seems like they're like, well, we'll give Ringo a couple songs to do. And
1: well, I think um, I think the story of it is like he was on some cruise or something, and there was like someone was telling them like, oh, the octopus because oct- octopi will uh, get like little stones and gather them and imp- arrange them in a specific order. Mm-hmm. So like he said that he thought that was a really cool thing, so he wrote the song about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I think the band was really supportive of of this because they always found a way for Ringo to sing a song on an album. But I think I want to say. This is his only his second like actual song he sung where where he was the author of the song. Um, I could be wrong, but I think I think Don't Pass Me By was the first one. But mm-hmm. I think this one is uh, leaps and bounds above that one. Yeah. Um, and really shows his uh you know, shows his progression as a, as a songwriter. And then I've just, uh, you know, it's, it's great. Cause you can, you could write anything and then you have the Beatles backing you up playing it. So it's <laughs> yeah. like, Oh, it's just, I mean, think of the character and everything that are brought to the song from all the other stuff that's going on. And this kind of like, you know, aquatic sounding guitar solo and this is cool, like guitar riffs and bass line. So, I mean, I, I think it's a really good song. It's yeah. Um, it wouldn't be my top on the album, but it's, 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 it's really solid.
0: And, and i actually like that paul just did like one of those good country walking bass lines on it
1: yep. yeah yep.
0: just just kind of keeping it going instead of because i i think that they just kind of let ringo shine through on this one a little bit you know sure. instead of doing too much that was crazy but yeah it's it's definitely a good song Yeah, I think I'm going to cut it off here. This seems to be a good stopping point and good point to give everybody a break. The episode will resume soon. I don't know exactly what date because I've got a bunch of interviews that have come in recently unexpectedly and some I expected. So uh, we'll definitely get back to this soon and I look forward to finishing my review with Nate. I'm having so much fun going over this album and I know he is too. It's a great album and it's great to have a, a good friend and Beatles fan along for the ride. We'll see you guys soon. Cheers! we